Hello, welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir, and today we will be speaking with Pascal Ghazale, Associate Professor of History at the American University in Cairo. Welcome to the podcast, Pascal. Thank you very much. It's an honor for me to be on the podcast. Today the topic is the language of revolt amongst working populations in the 19th century Middle East, in particular Egypt. And Pascal is a scholar of the legal and labor history of 19th century Egypt, and therefore is a very fitting guest to talk about this. And we're going to be talking about a project that she's been working on in the past few years called The People's Property, Resources and Citizenship in 19th Century Egypt. And one of the things we'll also be talking about not only is uh, what is the nature of, uh, of revolt amongst the working population in the 19th century, but how do we access it? How do we find this in the archives? And what is the story of accessing those archives themselves? So, Pascal, thank you again for coming on the podcast. Uh, let me pose this question to start off with. You talk about these moments of revolt, of rebellion in the 19th century Middle East, not just in Egypt, which is your focus, uh, but throughout the period and throughout the region. Can you just give us an example of some of these that drew your attention and why you found them so particular? The first instance that I came across and what, I guess, piqued my interest in the topic, it's not, I, I don't know if I would... Um, at this point, categorize it as rebellion, but rather maybe assertion of entitlement or attempts to assert control over certain things. Um, so the first example of that was the tobacco revolt in Persia in the 1890s. That was, you know, about a specific resource, tobacco. It was triggered when the Shah at the time gave a European investor, a concession over the production and sale of tobacco, and gradually using um, different mechanisms of mobilization, pretty much the majority of the population started to boycott tobacco and stopped smoking, mm, I wouldn't say overnight, but in a fairly short space of time. And I began to wonder how it was that people had come to identify with this crop just because it was grown on a specific piece of territory and how they had come to see themselves as entitled to um, having a say in how it was disposed of, so how it was grown and how it was distributed and, and who controlled those things. And that's how um, this project started. So there's a sort of national community uh, discussion emerging around this issue of the, the cultivation and distribution of tobacco what caught your eye on the way this topic was discussed? Yeah, it is It is exactly a question of national community. So there have been a few studies um, of different parts of the Middle East looking at how um, the nascent press, for instance, discussed these questions and how intellectuals articulated what it meant to be part of, of a nation or a national community. What I was interested in was more actions that people took mm -hmm. rather than ways in which they spoke about these things because a lot of the people that are involved in these actions are not literate or at least not literate enough to contribute to an intellectual debate about them. So what are, what are some of these actions that, you, that you're trying to describe here? Apart from boycotting tobacco, you can see similar examples in um, Lebanon in the mid-19th century with people uh, taking over agricultural land 
There are also examples from Egypt during the same period of people in villages, for example, refusing to pay their taxes, mm -hmm. uh, kicking out the tax collector, slightly later points in time, deciding that they're going to sort of administer their villages in a more or less autonomous way. Mm -hmm. And some of these, it's not we're not talking about peasant collectives necessarily, uh -huh. but we are talking about um, alliances of people that are not in the government. Normally, we would just see this as, as you say sometimes in your research, sort of economic a sort of base economic need, a base economic necessity. Obviously, people don't like to pay taxes, but what you see here is a new form or new language of protest that's not expressed in the newspapers, but in daily actions or these kind of small rebellions, small revolts. Yeah, so I think you're right to, you know, to caution against reading too much into these actions because a lot of the time they, you know, a refusal to pay taxes could just be a refusal to pay taxes. It doesn't have to be an expression of desire for citizenship rights or anything bigger than that. But I think that at the same time, when you look at the petitions that start coming out of the villages during this period and the ways in which people are talking about um, their their right to certain things or their belief, for example, that the land that they've worked on uh, for generations and their entitlement to work that land kind of starts to change mm -hmm. Um I think that for the urban areas in particular, Juan Cole kind of looked at some of those things when he discussed the Arobi revolt in Egypt, um, the 1881 rebellion uh, against the gradual imposition of British control over Egypt. Um, he talks about the social roots of that. John Chalcraft talks about that as well. I think I think that in the villages, you start to see the same kind of thing. Examples of peasants writing a petition to the ruler saying, we don't want this land to be sold, for example, to to an investor or to the land company. We would like to buy this land ourselves. So we're going to pool our money and present a petition to buy the land. And it's the combination of those things, I guess, that suggests that there's a shift happening towards, well, in the second half, I would say, of the of the 19th century. So may I ask here, why why is it at this point that people are worried about what's going to happen to the land? I mean, you mentioned it here just in this example that they don't want their land sold to uh, foreign investors or urban landlords or things like that, right? Yeah, so a lot of the time when talking about Egypt, but also about other parts of the region, what the peasants, what the agricultural workers have are hereditary rights to work the land. And they can pass these rights on to their children, at least for one generation, and then generally they have to pay the government a sum of money to be able to pass them on further. What starts to happen in the 19th century is that different layers of rights to property, for example, usufruct right or, you know, right to the land itself, these things begin to be collapsed into an exclusive right. And rather than situations where you can have superimposed or or layers, let's say, of owners, mm -hmm. you start to have an exclusive relationship between one individual, you know, and a, a kind of link of private property to one to one thing, to one object, um, which threatens all of the bundles of rights that had existed prior to that. So just to give maybe our listeners an example of this, just because this is a bit complex, I think for maybe a, a modern listener, a listener today to understand, because when we think of private property, you know, I own a piece of land, I can do with what I want from it. Whatever comes out of it uh, is sort of mine. And therefore, but this is not the way it was working in, let's say, early 19th century Egypt or Syria or 
Istanbul, right? Yeah, that's correct. So in, in some areas, the state is at least the nominal owner of the land. Right. And it then leases its right or it sublets its its right of ownership to the land to a variety of other parties. For example, um, tax farmers. So the tax farmers, in some cases, buy their right to collect taxes off a certain area, a certain region. Um, apart from the tax farmers, then there are the cultivators mm-hmm. who also have a right, uh, and as we said, you know, kind of stable hereditary right to work on a certain piece of land and, and usually to take a portion of what they cultivate. So you have these different groups whose rights are not mutually contradictory. Their rights are um, complementary. And these different sets of rights start to be, I think, in the second half of the 19th century, in a more accelerated way, they start to be condensed and compacted into this right that you're talking about. You know, it's it's my piece of land and I can do whatever I want with it. So in response to that, people are now attempting to reassert these multiple forms of rights in a new way, right? I mean, it sounds like they're coming up with this language to find a new way of expressing their attachment to their land, right? I think that they might do that in cases where, you know, they're being told that the rights that you've enjoyed up until now are going to be ended or going to be transformed. So, for example, your hereditary right to cultivate this land is going to be transformed into a a bare-bones kind of market relationship where you get paid and you carry out a certain task, and then after the season is over, for instance, you find yourself unemployed and sort of removed from the land. So they're trying to find, I think that they're trying to negotiate a space for themselves within this changing nexus of property relations. And on the other hand, you have the state that as, you know, the state apparatus starts to expand a little bit and become more Mm -hmm. complex, and again, I'm talking about Egypt, but I think the same is true um, elsewhere in the Arabic-speaking provinces of the empire, at least, um, the state starts to establish itself as the sole and the sole party that is entitled to certain things. One of the major infrastructure projects of this period is the Suez Canal. The state recruits or mobilizes large numbers of laborers to dig the Suez Canal in what are often extremely harsh circumstances, as we know, and then essentially sells off or gives the Suez Canal away Mm. to creditor nations, the European powers like Britain and France. So the the peasants, I'm assuming, or not assuming, maybe this is one of the hypotheses, the peasants who dig the canal do feel a sense of ownership Mm -hmm. towards it. How do they express that and how do they articulate it and how do they assert it? You know, that's, that's kind of the question that interests me. I, I saw mentions, for example, of rebellions that are organized by Bedouins, the Bedouins that were controlling the Red Sea uh-huh. routes, and they recruited the peasants who were digging the canal into these rebellions. But I have yet to find sufficient traces to be able to justify any mm-hmm. any conclusions. So it sounds fascinating, this, uh, this set of questions that you've posed. Uh, and I was just wondering, maybe you could just give us one more glimpse before we move into the question of the archives and how do we find this one more glimpse of what this sort of revolt might look like in uh, let's say late 19th century Egypt okay in late 19th century Egypt of course there is the the case of the Arabi revolt itself which i mentioned earlier the Arabi revolt is um something that has been looked at a lot from the point of view of of uh, the army and what triggered it in the army itself it's 
maybe the, the history of that is a little bit long and complicated to go into here in detail, but essentially it has to do with Egyptian-born um, soldiers who all of a sudden are no longer able to be promoted to become officers, mm -hmm. and they rebel against that and against the government. What people don't go into or maybe haven't gone into in, in great detail is the question of why it is that the peasants and a lot of the working population in the cities supported Ahmed Arobi, who was the leader of this revolt or became its figurehead a little bit, maybe despite himself. A and it seems, you know, in, in some cases it's treated as a kind of proto-nationalist thing and in other cases people say, no, you know, mm -hmm. it's just a question of the crowd going along with something because it seems like, um, it seems like a good idea. It's possible that one of the ideas that motivated people and that really caused them to mobilize was the idea of resources um, and the idea of, you know, Egypt's bankruptcy and the imposition of British control being something that was going to affect people on a, on a very immediate level. So it wasn't only that people were articulating spontaneously their uh, citizenship rights or their ownership of resources. There was also the fact that, for example, after having had the Suez Canal dug by these laborers, um, the ruler of Egypt then raised taxes on people in order to be able to pay for all of the infrastructure projects that he was um, initiating. So the, the link was being made. There's, there's kind of no doubt about that. Uh, again, how, how it is that we can investigate that and find precisely how it is that people who were not, who didn't have access to things like newspapers, how they formulated it, that's something that I'm kind of grappling with at this point. Another example that I'll mention quickly uh, dates from 1919, which um, is the year when full-scale revolt against British occupation um, was underway in Egypt. And during this period, there were a couple of experiments. One is better known than, than any of the others in a town called Zifta on, on the western uh, bank of the of the Nile in the province of Gharbeya. The population of Zifta declared themselves autonomous from the rest of Egypt and declared themselves a republic. So they basically closed off their area, uh, prevented tax collectors from coming in, mm -hmm. uh, collected their own harvest, distributed it, and engaged in a few months of, you know, experimenting with collective ownership and distribution of resources. Uh, they had a printing press, they printed pamphlets, and they had their own system of government. And then things died down, and Zifta was reincorporated into, you know, the the monarchy. But I do think that things like that warrant a close look and kind of a close understanding of why it is that um, the working population was going along with these things. Up, and it's not just a question of being recruited by notables or being, you know, sort of enmeshed in a web of patron-client relations that made them more susceptible to to supporting such endeavors. Welcome back. We've been speaking with Pascal Ghazale about the language of revolt amongst the working population in 19th and 20th century Egypt. And one of the key questions we keep coming back to is how do we find and identify these voices uh, through their actions? And this brings us, of course, to the questions of archives and access to archives. 
Uh, and Pascal, you had quite an, I think, interesting story uh, with this very issue over the past few years. Uh, what was it like to try to find this these stories in the archives? It was difficult. I had done work in the archives previously for uh, my master's and my PhD. So I was familiar with the Ottoman court records that are kept in the archives in Egypt. And my intention was to go back into those archives and look at the court records as well as the archives of the 19th century Egyptian state in an attempt to find traces of perhaps rebellions or petitions. I knew that there were many petitions, whether from workers in the urban areas or in the rural areas, sent to the government to complain about injustice or to ask for certain things. And I wanted to look at those. When I uh, applied for a permit to get into the archives, which is what you have to do in Egypt, mm -hmm. it was after 2011. And after 2011, the archives in Egypt came under the jurisdiction of state security. So the Ottoman archives are now considered a national security uh, matter. So you have to get, as a historian, as a researcher, you have to get the approval of state security in order to be able to access those archives. Mm -hmm. And you present a request detailing uh, what you are going to be working on, uh, as well as you know various letters of recommendation from the institution that you come from, etc. Right. And it's common knowledge among researchers that if you are working on anything that the security people might consider to be a security risk, you have to reformulate it in ways that are not threatening or that don't make you seem subversive. And so I formulated my project in a way that I thought was fairly mild, and I submitted it, and um, then I waited for a very long time, and no answer came. It wasn't approved, but it wasn't rejected. And I knew the um, staff of the reading room, who kind of, they're, they're sort of the gatekeepers. So you present your um, request to them, and they're the ones who transmit if, you, if, if it's uh, approved or rejected. I would uh, communicate with them, most often via WhatsApp, but also going to visit them to see, you know, why it was that my right. request wasn't being answered. And this process took about two and a half years. And finally, in despair, I went to state security headquarters in an attempt to find someone to talk to and ask <laughs> about the uh, about the, the request. So I can't wait. You actually just went to the the headquarters of state security, kind of knocked on the door That's metaphorically, exactly and I then did. asked to speak with the person in charge of archive access. Yes, there was no there was no door. There was a man sitting in a little you know behind a little window, and he was mildly surprised to see me. And he said, "You know, there is no one inside for you to speak to. We don't speak to individuals. Mm. We don't deal with citizens. We deal with government bodies." So I explained my problem to him briefly, and he seemed to he he seemed familiar with the kind of request that I had. Um, so he told me, go back to the archives and you will find, no doubt, that they have forgotten your request in a drawer somewhere. Go back to them and ask them to send us another request. So I did that. And two weeks later, I received a WhatsApp message from one of the ladies saying, congratulations, one of the ladies of the reading room. And that's, you know... How, how I obtained eventually the permit. I don't know if my visit to the to state security had anything to do with it or not. So, I mean, it brings this question, actually, I think it's something that a lot of us have to deal with now that these 
archives that we have traditionally used, whether in Egypt or in Syria or uh, to a lesser degree in Iraq, are no longer available and no longer accessible to us. How do we research, in a sense, around that topic, and how do we use different archives from around the world to kind of tell the story of the Middle East, right? There's actually been quite a lot written on it as well. Um, this past year in Egypt, um, the newspaper Madamos had a series on archives at um, Silas, the, the Cairo Institute for Liberal Arts and Sciences. Uh, there was a course on archives. Um, archives are definitely becoming a, a topic that is of great relevance to mm -hmm. a lot of different people. And, you know, the argument has been made that by focusing on these archives that are off limits to us and by obsessing about them and trying to get into them and we're just playing into the hands of the, the security bodies that want to make them into this, you know, national sort of stronghold. Mm. And we should just forget about the archives and, and go elsewhere. Um, I find this difficult because I was trained in a fairly conventional way as a historian. And I guess in that way, I'm a little bit of an empiricist and I tend to formulate my questions by starting work in the archives. It's mm. by looking at the at the primary sources that I'm able to understand where I can go. So it's very hard to me for me to divorce myself from that. I mean, it's an interesting critique that by insisting on access to the archives, these these people that you're mentioning are saying that we're making the archives more central than they actually are uh, to the telling of history. On the other hand, I, I'm interested to see what do they actually suggest that we do? Where, where should we look for history? I guess that um, some of the people who talk about this kind of fetishism of the archive have other kinds of sources. Some of them work, for instance, um, I'm thinking of one colleague who works with um, old recordings. Mm -hmm. Other people uh, do oral history. That's also kind of a security hazard in Egypt at the right. moment. And I imagine that in places like Syria or Iraq, it's pretty much impossible. Mm -hmm. Other people work with uh, print sources, newspapers, yeah. uh, things of that nature. So it's not that there is nothing else there, but it also seems to me that by acquiescing in state security's monopoly over the archives, we are relinquishing a right that is ours as, you know, as researchers, as historians, as scholars. Right. And I and I don't and think that we should, too. and as citizens, yes, but I mean, I don't think it's also a question of, it's not because I am an Egyptian citizen, for instance, that I should be entitled to go into the Egyptian archives. I don't think that my nationality should mm -hmm. play a role in that. I think it, it would be a mistake to go along with that idea and say, let's just turn to other sources because... Well, other sources, first of all, what if they're made inaccessible as well? Mm -hmm. And it just seems that, yeah, by giving in, we're, we're losing a really important battle. So I would encourage people to keep on trying to access the archives, not necessarily to fetishize them again, mm -hmm. but definitely to, to keep on trying to use them because they are an important part of this, you know, methodology and and what what everyone is trying to do well on that note pascal thank you so much for giving us that impassioned plea for access to the archives which as you said are not just important uh, for us as citizens or subjects of state but for all people and all researchers that are interested in understanding this and interested in writing history of one kind or another 
And uh, we look forward to hearing more about your project in the future. Thank you so much for having me. If you're interested in learning more, we encourage our listeners to go to their website where you'll find a short bibliography provided by Pascal on this topic. Also check out our Facebook group and go to our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can find all the different episodes and uh, hopefully many more things. 